0: gets out, hey, there's an apostle in jail here. I mean, did you hear what's going on? As that word is getting out and as they're hearing about his faithfulness and his um, uh, his ministry that he's engaged in, not at all discouraged about being in prison, but actually it's empowered him. It's, it's excited him for the work. And as he does that, other brothers and sisters are hearing about his report saying, yeah, yeah, we should, we should be faithful like that. We should get out there and, and minister to the, the pagan Romans. And and that's exactly what's happening is there's a motivation, there's a new courage. Uh, in verse 14, you'll see there that because of his imprisonment, these other brethren have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And uh, so that's the context of Paul as he introduces uh, the Philippian letter. And uh, the section we looked at last week, he, like I said, he's sort of on the fence because he's thinking about, let's see, I could die in prison. Right? I could never get out. I'm just gonna, I go before the emperor and they pronounce some sentence and I die and that's the end of it. Or I might be released and I could continue on, uh, in the ministries that I would engaged in before. And, and it's like he, he lets us in on this sort of conversation he's having with himself. He says, well, let me think about this. Um, well, if I die and to go be with Jesus, that's a pretty good thing. Right? In fact, that's better. That's gain, he calls it last time. And then, and you think, but yeah, but if I go to be with the Lord, then, then my ministry is done on earth. And as he thinks about the Philippians and as he thinks about the, some of the other people that he's been ministering to, he thinks you know i'm not, I'm not sure that my ministry course is finished, and I'm not sure that 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 part of my uh my ministry is done and so he he says, "Well, going to be with Christ is better but to but to stay here and remain on for your sake is beneficial for you and uh, we don't know if he had some revelation about this or if it was just his best guess at the time. Uh, but he concluded, verse twenty-five, that he knows he will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Uh, but even as he thought about living, the, I think the challenge from last week, verse twenty-two, that li, uh, verse twenty-one, that living is about Christ, and verse twenty-two expands that. He says, "If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me." So when he thought about remaining. Alive, all the things that, that we think about, that, that we think, well, I don't want to die because I'll miss my family. I don't want to die because I'll miss my stuff. I don't want to die because, you know, there's more rounds of golf I want to play. You know, all this, all these things that we typically think about that motivate us to live, those are not on Paul's radar at all. Um, he's thinking about the ministry that he has and the fruitful labor that if he's still alive, it's for the purpose of gospel labor. And uh, and if God chooses to take him home, it's because his course is done in God's sovereign plan. So that's where he is. He's, he's convinced he's going to remain. Uh, going to be with Christ is better, but to remain alive is better for the Philippians. So he's confident that he's going to remain and minister to them so that Christ will continue to be exalted, verse 26, uh, in their lives. And then he has this final little section that we're going to look at today, verse 27 down to 30. He says, only conduct yourself, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Uh, that's just a few verses, but there's a lot that we need to unpack in the time. So let's uh, let's jump right in here. And let's talk, first of all, as we see the topic introduced in verse 27, about walking in a worthy manner. Verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, or live worthily of the gospel, and we need to maybe stop and ask a question because maybe you've read sections like this in the New Testament before. The, the call to walk worthy of Christ, worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling with which you've been called is pretty common, right? But here's a good question. How do you live worthily when you know you're not? Right? Um, and, and, and to some extent, it that question raises or maybe causes us to inspect what is he really saying here a little more carefully? What does it mean to walk worthy of the gospel? Um, Hold your place there and turn to Luke chapter 15. Let me show you something. Luke chapter 15. This is one of those we're going to end up all over the New Testament today, so just hang on to your hats. Um, in Luke chapter 15, we have the three parables that really teach us about true repentance, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and finally the prodigal son, as it's become uh, to be known as. And you remember, in the I think we all are familiar with the prodigal son story, and you remember that there's that time when the son has gone off, he's squandered, all of the money on, on prostitutes and, and all sorts of wild living, uh, even the fact that he would ask for his share of the inheritance before his father was dead was an insult to his father, essentially communicating in that culture, Dad, I wish you were already dead. And then there's that that wonderful, divine, miraculous moment where he's sitting amongst the pigs, And he's looking and he's like, even those pigs have something to eat. And here I am, I'm starving. And he thinks back to his father. He thinks to the servants in his father's house that have plenty to eat and have a nice place to stay. And the scripture tells us that he, wonderful words, he comes to his senses. You remember that? Look down at uh, Luke chapter 15, uh, verse 17. But when he had came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? Verse 18, I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And then, of course, he goes home and he does just that. He goes home and he tells his father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And one of the things we're supposed to get from that story is that somebody who is truly repentant has an awareness, has a, a, a sense of their own unworthiness before the God that made them. That they are not, we are not worthy of God's love, of his grace, of his mercy. We're not, we're not worthy to be part of his family because we have rejected the God that's made us. We've rebelled against him. So on your outline there, genuine believers acknowledge their inherent unworthiness. We see that in Luke 15. Uh, we see it in John 1, 27. And John, who, who you know, was a believer, at least in the Old Testament sense, he he, he thinks about Jesus coming and he says, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals, let alone to be a part of his family. So, so you've got this, this, a, a true believer, someone who's really repentant knows they are not worthy of the God that loves them. They're not worthy of the grace and mercy. Let alone of the sacrifice of the Son of God on their behalf. That, 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 that's what grace is, right? Grace is unmerited favor. It, it means I don't deserve it, but He gives it to me anyway. That's grace. That's the essence of the Gospel. And yet, and yet, even though that's true, look at this. The Scriptures admonish believers to walk or to live in a manner worthy of Christ and the Gospel. So in a sense, He's saying you need to live in a worthy way even though you know in your heart that you're not worthy of that gospel. Is it you see that? And that's where we have to say, well, what is he really meaning by that? What, what does he really mean when he says, walk in a worthy manner? Well, let me just show you some of these. Um, flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. You guys have read these before. Terry went through Ephesians uh, not too long ago. Not too long ago. It was like a year ago, wasn't it? Seems like it wasn't too long ago, but... Yeah, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, the hinge of the book of Ephesians that, that connects the, the introductory theological portion of the book with the application of that theology in 4 to 6. Here's the hinge, chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You see that there? There it is. And he expands with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there it is. We need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Turn the page to the right, just a couple pages, to Colossians chapter 1. We'll see something very similar. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. As uh, Paul introduces Colossians, to, uh, the, the, introduces the letter to the group of believers at the Colossian church there, uh, he starts by praying for them. And, and listen to his prayer in chapter 1, verses 9 and following. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now now watch, watch this part here, okay? So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. There it is. To please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father. Who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of life. So, so Paul says, I'm praying for you that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will so that you can live in a worthy way of Christ. We see it again in First Thessalonians, if you turn a few pages now to the right to first Thessalonians chapter two. Again, this this idea of walking worthy is all over the New Testament. This time talking to the Thessalonian Christians. He's talking he's talking, actually commending them about how they're they're uh, witnesses of God, they're, they li- are living uprightly and blamelessly. Um, he says in verse eleven of chapter two, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father what his own children. Well, what have the apostles been exhorting them and encouraging them to do? Verse twelve in order that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What is that all about? What do you think that means? Well, it has to be by faith. Okay, right. has to be by faith. It has to be based on a, a trusting relationship with God. Okay, good. Nobody. It's it's living in light of who God has declared us to be. That's it. It's living in light of God who has declared us righteous. I mean, what is the the gospel? Is the great exchange right? When a person repents and trusts in Christ, my sins get transferred to him, and he pays for them. And his righteousness gets credited to my account so that when God looks at the sinner who is trusting in Christ, he sees a sinner who is now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And it's on the basis of that position, that, that transaction of real righteousness from the account of Christ to the account of the sinner that God can declare that believer justified or righteous because of Christ's work. Now, we know we didn't earn that, did we? And we know we don't deserve that. But God treats us, this is the amazing part, he treats us as if it's our own. He treats us as righteous. And so it's exactly what you're saying, Laurie, that now God says, in Christ, this is who I've made you to be. This is who I've declared you to be. I want you to live like that's true. Does that make sense? Now you say, well, but, but there's that whole position practice thing, right? In, in, our, in, in our position, we're righteous, but in our practice, we're struggling, right? Our, our practice is not where our position is yet. That's what sanctification is. Sanctification is the converging of our practice with our position. But here's the other thing I want you to see about these verses, He's not focusing on the worthiness of the believer, even the believer in Christ. He's focusing on the worthiness of what? What's that? Okay. In, in, in our verse, back in Colossians, he said, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Okay? Okay. So there's that yes uh, position I'm in Christ and, and I need to live in light of my position that's true, but but all of these when it, the you know uh, walk in a manner worthy of your calling walk in a manner worthy of the gospel walk in a manner worthy of the Lord what what the authors are arguing is that the gospel is infinitely valuable that that's what worthiness what does worthy mean it means something is is worth something right it's valuable it, it, it's precious it there you it, it's it's expensive. And if you think about it, things that we deem valuable are things that motivate us to do things, right? If, if I think that, um, uh, if I think that, that taking my family on a cruise is, is really a cool thing, then what am I going to do? That's going to motivate me to save up my money and go do that because that's a valuable thing to me, right? We, we sacrifice, we give, we're motivated by things that are valuable to us. And Paul says the gospel is intrinsically valuable. Isn't that worth living in a certain way, consistent with the value of the gospel? See, see, that's the argument of the Bible, is if Christ is really worth, if He is the pearl of great price, right? If, if He is the ultimate, how we live should, should be consistent with the fact that He's the most valuable being in the universe. So that what I say and what I do and my motives and, and my priorities and what I treasure and what I think about and what I spend my time on, all of those things are just expressions of what we think is valuable, right? You ever thought about that? What we spend our time on, what we spend our money on, what, what our priorities, our motives, all of those things revolve around what we value the most. And Paul is saying if Christ is, is of infinite value, and if that's really true, now, live like that 's true. live like he is the most precious thing there is that, that you have the pearl of great price you, you own it live like it 's valuable. I think that, do you agree with me I think that 's what he 's trying to say since the gospel is of, is of infinite value, believers should live like it is. I mean what, is it, what does it say if we can just can we just circle the wagons here for a minute. What does it say about the value of the gospel when the average unbeliever looks at us and sees us loving and living for all the same things unbelievers do? What does that say about the value of Christ? He's just one more thing. He's just a, he's an accessory. Yeah, he's important. Sure, Of course he's important. But he's not the driving passion of my life. See, that's not something to feel guilty about in the sense of, well, I I should be making Christ more... No, no. That is is more a diagnostic. Because if I think about my life and I think Christ is not the driving passion of my life, what that's saying is, I don't really believe he's as valuable as the Bible says he is. It's a value problem. It's a worth problem. Because when I esteem Christ as the precious gift that he is... You better believe that's going to change everything in my life. Because we follow and sacrifice and give our money and our time and our affections to what we deem to be the most valuable thing, whatever it is. So back to Colossians, let's look back here. Back in Colossians, or I'm sorry, Colossians, what book are we in? Philippians, that's right. (laughs) I knew it was one of Paul's letters. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 is where we're at. Walk in a manner, or conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's saying live like the gospel of Christ is the most valuable thing there is. Now, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, he gives a couple of specifics. I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 27. So whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are, here's the first one, standing firm in one spirit. And, and, and the nature, the the verb tense that Paul uses here emphasizes the ongoing faithfulness of the unity that he's describing. So that's why I put it on your notes as faithful unity with one another. Now, here's, here's the two dots I want you to connect for a minute. What does unity with one another have to do with prizing Christ in a walking in a manner worthy of Him? Is there only one answer? Oh, I'm sure there's lots of answers. Jump in here. Okay, so, so Jesus himself tells us to love one another. Okay, in fact, he goes a step further. It's in John 13, right? He says, you know how the world's going to know that you're my disciples? How's he going to know that? How's the world going to know that? Sure. So, so now watch this. When, when, when people in Granbury get to know us, and they think, these guys claim to have the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you know what? They can't even get along with each other. <laughs> what is that worth? You see that? They're gonna tell me how I can be reconciled with my God and they can't even reconcile with each other? Are you kidding me? I'm supposed to take that seriously? Sure. That, that, yeah. Do you see that? That, that unity, unity is, is an expression of our love for Christ and our love for one another. And if we really value Christ, we value things like John 13. Of course, our love for one another isn't an apologetic. What's, what's another? I, there are multiple answers. What's another possibility here? How does, how does our love for Christ, our valuing of Him so that we walk worthy, how does that connect with getting along and being at unity with one another? Rich? Well, we, we function as a body, not okay, we function as a body. Yeah, the, the number one analogy that the Scripture uses to describe the church is what? What's the most frequent? It's the body, right? And, and you see that in Corinthians, you see it in Ephesians, you see it in Romans. Yeah, and, and, and that, that, that puts a, a corporate sense on what the church is and does and should be. Okay. Someone else? Yeah, Dwayne? That's right. Mm-hmm. And we don't believe that again we go back. What's the foundation of our faith? Mm-hmm. we don't really believe that Christ can deliver the goods hmm. and redeem us with his blood, hmm. then it's uh shall That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. It is. Well, I appreciate you. I mean, you, you kind of you chipped a bit off of the iceberg that I think this topic is, and that if I'm going to get along with somebody the way the Bible describes unity, let's just think about that for a minute. It means I have to learn to give preference to one another in honor. It means, as we're going to learn in the next chapter, I need to consider one another as more important than myself, and not just look out for my own interests, but also for the interests of others. It means when I sin, I actually have to go and seek forgiveness and humble myself. Or when there is something going on that needs addressing that I would love somebody enough to go to them and say, I love you, man. Do you, do you see that this is going on in your life and that if you don't turn away from it, it will destroy you and probably your family and others around you? Um, it means, it means we're honest about our fallenness. That, that we don't walk into this room with our game faces on saying, yeah, I've got it all together. Everything's going great in my life. And then you say, well, yeah, me too. It's like a game we play. You, you have to be honest and transparent at that level in order to have real unity. And I, I agree with you. There's a lot. There's a lot underneath the surface here. But, but again, why on earth? I mean, that's work, isn't it? It, it hurts. It's something you have to, to work on and by God's grace be motivated. to. Why would anybody do that? What would be the motivation? Only if we thought that Christ was the most worthy thing in the world. It's the cause of the yeah, it is. And that leads, thank you Becky for the transition, to number two. What's the second expression of walking in a worthy manner? It's single-minded laboring in gospel ministry. Single-minded laboring in gospel ministry. He says also, not only that you're st- standing firm in one spirit, but with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So, so the, the main expression of unity that he has in mind here is unity for the gospel ministry. Now, none of you mentioned it, but what what suffers the most when we're not on the same page with each other. Our witness. Our witness. Yeah. Um, okay. If we, um, uh, baseball season is upon us and football season is not too far around the corner. What happens if the team does not know how to play together? You lose. <laughs> That's what I get for saying things like that. Um, The the, the answer is the whole team suffers and the work doesn't get done. So as we're having our little conflicts with each other here, not only is the world looking and saying, uh, not only is the world losing credibility in our witness, but the work isn't getting done. We're not evangelizing, we're fighting. We're not ministering to the lost, we're we're trying to get along. And and you understand, as long as this side of heaven, we're going to have to work at getting along. You understand that, right? That's a process, that's a work, and and we're going to blow it. We just need to be committed to keeping at it, right? But if we're not serious about that, we're not out Ministering the gospel and the work suffers. And I think that's what he says here that, you know, you're, you're standing firm in one spirit, you're unified, and then particularly with one mind, you're striving together for the faith of the gospel. Because if I am to remain on in the flesh, it is for what? For the purpose of ministry. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. To continue to minister the gospel to the lost. That's right. So we need to strive to do that. Mm-hmm. And you know the parallel of this point in Ephesians 4 which talks about the the goals of the church are unity and maturity. And one of the areas that Paul points out in Ephesians chapter 4 verse it's like 14 or 15 somewhere in there um, 13 or 14 is um, specifically the area of doctrinal unity and doctrinal wisdom because remember he says if if you're not mature in your doctrine, then you're tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, and you're easily deceived, is his point. So doctrine is certainly one of the things he has in mind when he thinks about unity and maturity. There's a third aspect, though, of what he... remember, we're trying to figure out, what does walking worthy look like? Well, he's given us two points, being faithfully unified with one another and single-minded in our labor in gospel ministry. And by the way, that word striving there or laboring, you understand that that that's a Gospel ministry is hard work. And whenever the Bible describes it, it it picks out of the dictionary terms that belong at the construction site or in the athletic arena or um, in in some other context where there is sweat involved, there is dirt and work involved, there is uh, striving, laboring, contending. I mean, think of all the words the Bible uses to describe ministry. Uh, it, it, it's not sitting on the spiritual couch. It, it's, it's as you know, Paul viewed himself, he says, I view myself, my life, as a drink offering. You know, what does that mean? I pour it out and I die and I go to be with Jesus. And, and the picture is almost by the time we get to the end of our life, we've given everything we can give. We, we've exhausted ourselves for the sake of gospel ministry. And then we go to be with him. Our our rest is there. (laughs) Our rest ultimately is there in heaven. But he gives one third little point here. It's in verse 28. Look what he says here. He says, "...in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God." The third aspect of walking in a manner worthy is a God-given fearlessness in gospel opposition. A God-given fearlessness in gospel opposition. That little word there, um, alarmed. You know, I think about alarmed as like, you know, my alarm clock went off this morning and I promptly ignored it. You know, cause that's what you do. But, you know, it's the alarm. It, the word is, is you're scared. You're fearful. It's not the strongest word for fear, but it means fear. And he says, you are not fearful because of your opponents. And notice the end of the verse, um, you know, the the salvation that you have and the the fearlessness that you have in the midst of opposition is from God. So it's a God-given fearlessness in the midst of opposition. It's almost like he says, oh, by the way, as you strive together for the gospel, guess what? It's not going to be smooth sailing. In fact, we, we should just we should just remind ourselves of this unpleasant but nonetheless true aspect of reality. There is we should expect opposition to gospel ministry. We should just expect it. Um, you know, I think, I think <clears> a good <throat> point in this whole with unity with another You know, I'm always afraid for myself in opposition. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's not an mm-hmm. attack against me. Right. And it's not an attack against even the family. It's against God and their yeah. strength and numbers. And yeah. we start thinking, yes, this unity is holding so much bigger mm-hmm. than me. Right. That's a good point. Joan? Mm-hmm. That's right, And I, I agree that there is strength in numbers, and, and I think that, that our unity can be uh, a source of, of courage in the midst of opposition, because it's like we're all going through it together, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, it, it's a one of the ways see, again, why would anybody keep doing something that might cost them their life? that might result in persecution, that might at the minimal level be a constant form of inconvenience. I mean, why would we choose to live according to God's word? Why would we ever do that? Because we prize Christ as being ultimately valuable. He's worth it. Uh, That's why we endure. That's why we keep going. That's why we try to get along. That's why we confess our sins. That's why we're transparent. Uh, Because we love Christ and we esteem him higher than anybody else. And notice, uh, just as a, a footnote in verse twenty-eight, um, you know the fact that they're opposing the gospel shows that these opponents that there's destruction coming. You caught that, right? But the fact that you have opposition to the gospel is is actually a reminder of your salvation, because when, when you're when you're striving for the gospel and there's opposition, and yet you show a fearlessness in the midst of that. When you, when you have a courage that says, well, I know not everybody's going to like what I'm saying, or I know it's going to cost me this or that, but I'm, I'm going to keep going, that is actually a testimony to your true conversion, that you really are saved. It's an evidence of that. It's a fruit of that. All right, let's wrap this up here. Look at the next section here, um, and there are some others. We, we, we saw it in Ephesians 4. You can look these up on your own time. Because those other verses that talk about walking in a manner worthy give other expressions of what walking in a manner worthy looks like. In Ephesians, it was all character, wasn't it? Humility, compassion, being peaceable with one another. So walking in a manner worthy of the Lord means we're committed to being like Christ in our character. In Colossians 1, what did he say? That you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respect, to bear fruit in every good work, to increase in the knowledge of God, to be strengthened with power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, gloriously giving thanks to the Father. Right? It's, it's this whole, I'm living to please God as I'm growing in knowledge of Him And then there's fruit that comes in my life as a result of that as I continue on in gospel ministry. So we know we're walking worthy when we see the fruits as related in those passages. All right, let's wrap this up here. Look at the last two verses. Verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What message is very unlikely to be on Christian television programs this morning? God has called you to suffer. Right? Um, that's not a popular doctrine that is that is a part of gospel of the gospel that we like to edit out but but listen listen to it again for you it's been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake when when you when you sign up to be a follower of Jesus Christ you you are signing on the line i'm i am i'm am signing up to suffer um John MacArthur years ago compared it to, to uh, joining the military. Do you pay anything to join the military? No, it's absolutely free, just like salvation. But it may, but it may cost you everything, right? And that, that's that's exactly what being a Christian is like in that regard. So let's break this down a little bit. Following Christ is a call to both believe in Him and suffer for in Him. Let's just run through these verses here. John fifteen 20. I'll start it, you finish it. Jesus is talking. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. They will persecute you. We looked at this verse not too long ago, um, but just listen to Romans chapter uh, 8. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we also may be glorified with Him. So, so suffering with Christ is a fruit that we're really Christians. And, you know, that may mean martyrdom for some people, it may be much more mild expressions of persecution and suffering for others, but suffering is part of the gospel call. Uh, anybody know 2 Timothy 3.12 from memory? 2 Timothy 3.12, anybody know that? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not like this is some hidden doctrine of the Bible. But that call, and notice, notice the language of Philippians. The language of Philippians, look back at the text there, to you it has been what? What does that mean? You know, it's interesting you said that. Uh, charizomai is the word. Anybody know what, what the word charis? Grace. Charis in Greek is the word for grace. Charizomai, it's built off of Charis. It's a grace gift. To you, believer, God has granted, has graciously given you a gift. That gift is that you might believe. And that's just a reminder that faith is a gift of God. That's what Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10 says, right? That even our faith is a gift that's granted us by God. We have to express it, but it's a gift. But not only has God graciously granted to us faith, He's granted to us suffering. Do we clarify this suffering for the cause of the gospel, not right. just general suffering? Yes, but by context, that's what he's talking about: is suffering for the cause of the gospel. Obviously, there there is other forms of suffering that result from living in a fallen world or sin or whatnot. But this this is particular suffering. Um, it says there for His sake, which I think qualifies it, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yes. You may. Mm-hmm. It just creates a little bit of anxiety. Yeah. And I guess maybe what's happening is I'm suffering to some degree. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I haven't thought about the, the discouragement of not seeing fruit in gospel ministry as being a form of suffering, but that's a good, that's worth thinking about. Um, so what are we learning here? Um, both faith and suffering have been graciously given by God. And the call to suffer as a believer is, is part of what it means to be a Christian. You remember Jesus said, you know, he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And, and the cross in that day was not a, not a, a fun little Christian symbol that we wore around our neck, the, the cross was a symbol of capital punishment. So it's like wearing a, you know, a lethal injection needle on your neck, on your necklace, right? I mean, that, that's what it would be like. And it's a call to suffer. It's a call ultimately to die. Um, and he says there, um, experiencing the same suffering which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Meaning the Philippians will eventually experience suffering similar to Paul's experience. And, and that, that may be that he has, again, God has given him some revelation or maybe he's just reading the times here. But um, what is going on in the nation of Rome in the Philippians' time and through the rest of the first century, what, what, what's, what's going to happen in the next few years? The first wave of what? Of persecution of the Christian church under Nero. And a lot of these Christian brothers and sisters that he's writing to will die under Nero's persecution. Um, a couple of quick thoughts here and we'll end here. What does suffering have to do with Paul's point? How does this fit into the context? Very quickly, suffering is the context where Christ will be exalted in Paul's body, either by life or by death. Did you catch that? Paul is suffering for the gospel. That's the context with which he says, I want Christ to be exalted in my body. He's either going to die in prison or he's going to live. But either way, he wants to do it well. He wants to do it for in a way that honors the name of Christ. So suffering is the context with which he, he makes that statement. That's the connection. There's another connection. Suffering is the context where the Philippians must walk worthy of the gospel. See, Paul is looking down the road saying, Philippians, you understand that suffering is the context. That's going to be the occasion with which you have to walk in a manner worthy. You're not going to walk in a manner worthy and everything's great, everything's wonderful. It's You're going to be suffering and you're going to have to walk in a manner worthy. Uh, Flip over to 1 Peter and let's wrap up our time here. There's two other points I want to to make here. Look at 1 Peter 3. You know these verses, but we often forget that the context is suffering. 1 Peter 3, verse 14, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, there it is, right? I'm suffering because of the gospel. He says, You're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That kind of reminds us of Christ being exalted in our body, right? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. What's the context of that wonderful apologetic verse? We're going to give it a defense. We're going to give an account for the hope that's within us. The context is suffering for the sake of righteousness. So Paul makes or Peter makes the point, suffering provides opportunities for gospel ministry. When people say, how can you still exalt your God even though it's costing you your life? How do you do that? And then we have an opportunity to give an account, an apologetic, if you will, for the hope that is within us. Think about that in suffering and the struggling in your life that 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 is that is a context for gospel opportunities as you suffer well as you suffer uh, in a way that Christ is exalted in your life and then back up just just one chapter to first peter chapter two verse twenty one for uh, verse twenty excuse me what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated that you endure it with patience, but when you do what is right and suffer for it. You patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Here it is. Verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, the purpose of suffering, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting self to him who judges righteously. So on your outline, last point, suffering provides opportunities to exemplify Christ. We're called to suffer for righteousness in the same way that he did. And what does that do? that puts on display the very point of Philippians 1, that Christ is exalted in his body. Christ is lifted up. And what does it do for walking a manner worthy? When we suffer in a way that honors God, when we suffer in a way that we can find joy in the midst of hard circumstances, we show that Christ is valuable. Do you see how that all connects? Christ is exalted. We show him to be the most valuable being in the universe and we suffer the way that Christ suffered. Well, we're out of time. There's a lot there, but um, we can think about walking in a manner worthy and suffering at whatever degree God would call us to suffer in a way that Christ is exalted in our lives. Father, thank you for this time and your Word. And uh, it's a challenging section. Now, we don't. Many of us did not understand that following Christ meant suffering when we first heard the gospel. But, Father, we would all agree that he is of infinite value. And so, Father, I pray in our unity, in our maturity, in our priorities, in how we suffer, that we would live like he is the most valuable thing we can have. Father, we love him and we want to honor him. Our greatest desire is that he would be exalted in our bodies whether things are good or whether things are hard, so that people can see how valuable that you really are. We pray in Christ's name, amen.